Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode 17, Immortality and Brain-Eating Snakes. The Persian city of Kazwin, where our trade ambassadors from Holstein are now, is about 50 miles from the south shore of the Caspian Sea. They have traveled almost 500 miles overland, after being shipwrecked on the west shore near the small town of Nisive. And they have roughly another 300 miles to go before reaching their destination, the capital city of Isfahan. Kazwin, we are told by our author Adam Hilarius, is one of the principal cities of the province of Erak, which is in what used to be the ancient state of Parthia. The city is seated in a great sandy plain, a half-day's journey from the mountains to the north and the west. Being so far from the border with any neighboring country, it has no walls and no military garrison. But more than 100,000 people live there, and a good number of them are military-age men. Its inhabitants speak a dialect of Persian that is somewhat different from the common dialect, and Hilarius compares the differences to those of the German and Dutch languages. The houses are all made of brick, baked in the sun according to the Persian way, and the streets are not paved, so the least bit of wind causes the city to fill up with dust. The only source of water in Kazwin is an aqueduct that comes from the mountains. These water systems are called kanats, were first built in Persia or Arabia around 1000 BC, and tens of thousands of kanats are still in use in some 35 countries today. To build a kanat, fresh water must be found by sinking a vertical shaft into the ground, at an elevation higher than where the water is needed. A long horizontal tunnel is then dug uphill from the destination to intersect with the main shaft, and water flows downhill into fields or canals or cisterns as needed. The tunnel is built by connecting a series of intermediate shafts, each about 60 feet from one another. These excavations create mounds of soil that are characteristic sites on the Persian landscape. The workers who built these systems were often teams of fathers and sons, and the trade was typically handed down to subsequent generations. The ancient Greek historian Polybius, circa 208 to 125 BC, wrote that Persian kings gave these working families the right of cultivating the land for five generations. People incurred great expense and trouble in making underground channels reaching a long distance, so that at the present day, those who make use of the water do not know whence the channels derive their supply. In Kazwin, the Germans are forced to take shelter from rising temperatures. Luckily, almost every house has a particular room for keeping ice and snow during the summer months. We were forced to get into these to avoid the excessive heat, Valerius writes. The perimeter of Persia is almost entirely mountainous, while the center is a vast desert plateau that sits below the mountains, but two or three thousand feet above sea level. The country might be described as a saucer, and the central desert is sometimes called Kanat civilization due to its long historical use of the irrigation systems. Kazwin, at the extreme northwestern edge of the Great Desert, is snuggled into a pocket right up against the Alborz mountain range. The kings of Persia once had their ordinary residences here, after Shah Tamas transferred his court here from Taurus. The city has two great markets, 
The bigger of the two is somewhat longer than the one in Artabil, but not as wide. On the south side are several great homes built by Khans and Persian lords. The other marketplace is toward the west of the city, and both have a great number of merchants and an abundance of commodities at reasonable prices. On the east side of the city another kind of commodity is for sale in the evenings, after the shops are closed. There a considerable number of what Olarius calls common traders sit in rows on the streets, faces covered with veils, and prostitute themselves to any that will take them up. Behind each one stands a bawd, who holds in her hand an unlit candle. When a customer comes, she lights the candle so that he may look the wench in the face, find the one he likes best, and order her to follow him. Our translator John Davies uses the word bawd here to signify what we would call a madam or a pimp, someone who procures prostitutes. The English word was known since at least the late 15th century in the sense of a lewd person of either sex, but since the 1700s has been applied only to women. It might be a shortening of a 13th century French word that passed into Middle English, which combined the ideas of a pimp with a person who runs errands. There are many caravanserais in the city for the convenience of foreign merchants, and a great number of public baths. One such bath is located behind the garden belonging to an ancient king's palace, which is half destroyed, but also carries with it an ancient fable. It is said that Caswin was once the home of a famous physician named Lockman, a black Arabian who had acquired a great reputation because of the many books he had written about medicine and other works that endeared him to the inhabitants of the city. One day the wise Lokman was asked how he had attained such great learning, and he said it was due to the ignorant and uncivil people, for he had always done the opposite of what he had seen them do. Lokman lived to a ripe old age, and on his deathbed he sent for his son, telling him that he was leaving him a treasure of uncountable worth, consisting of three jars full of medicinal waters. These medicines had the power to raise a dead man back to life, but only if they were used before the body began to decay. Pouring the first glass upon the dead body would cause the soul to return. The second would cause the body to stand upright. And when the third glass was poured, the person would be absolutely alive in all the ways he was before death. However, he told his son that he had very seldom used these medicines, fearing that doing so would interfere with powers reserved to God alone. And he cautioned his son to do likewise, treating them as a secret to be admired, rather than put often to experience. With that advice being given, Lockman died. His son obeyed his father and reserved use of the medicines until he himself was dying. On his deathbed, the son commanded a servant to make use of those waters, as his father had taught him. The man brought his master's dead body to the bath we spoke of before, and poured upon it the first two glasses which had the effect Lockman had promised. After the second glass was poured, the son sat up, impatient to return to life, and cried out, Poor, poor! His servant was so frightened that the third glass slipped from his hand and broke upon the floor, and so Lockman's unfortunate son was forced to lie down again and take the journey which all other mortals do. Olarius relates that he hears other stories of Lockman, but thinks it is enough to tell us just the one.
On July 2, the Daruga of Kazwin invites the ambassadors to a performance organized specifically for the German visitors. We have not encountered the word Daruga until now, but it essentially means mayor or governor. According to the Encyclopedia Iranica, 13th century Mongol invaders left small military garrisons in Persian towns as they crushed all resistance and moved on. The officials in charge were representatives of the great Khan, responsible for the administration of the garrison towns. Their functions included taxation, maintaining the postal service that we discussed in episode 2, dispatching revenues and tribute to the Mongol court, compiling population registers, organizing labor for public works, recruiting local militias, and entertaining distinguished visitors. After the Mongol Empire collapsed, the duties of this official changed, and in the Safavid period he became something of a police chief. In 1669, French traveler Jean Chardin wrote that each fortress or town has its own governor, called Daruga. The governor of Kazwin has the official title of Daruga, and he draws an annual salary from the central government, and a new Daruga is appointed every two years. But I have been using the word governor throughout this podcast, and will continue to use it when talking about these town leaders. The performance organized by the governor is held in the great marketplace, where the ground is sprinkled with water to prevent the inconvenience of dust, and the audience is seated in a ring underneath tents that shade them from the sun. Today, we would probably call the event a circus, and the first act is a team of excellent vaulters, followed by naked wrestlers whose bodies are covered with oil, two rams that run very furiously at one another, and two birds somewhat bigger than parrots that fight with great animosity. Exciting music then introduces eight large wolves fastened to long ropes, and their handlers allow the beasts to roam among the crowd, pulling them back before they can do any harm. Eventually, a man covered with thick padding fights the wolves, picks one of them up by the body, and carries him out of the tent. The ambassadors would have been treated to an elephant act, but the prince who owns the beast says he cannot interrupt its regular feeding schedule, and urges the Germans to wait. Valerius tells us the entertainment has already lasted too long, they are weary and prejudiced by the heat, and so they go home to their quarters. Some days afterward, they see the elephant at the prince's lodgings, and are astonished at his monstrous bulk, which exceeds the height of any two men. They see more elephants when they get to Isfahan, but this one is bigger than any of those. His legs are bigger than any man about the waist, and his ears are half an L in length or better. An L is an old and inconsistent measure, which the Flemish counted as 27 inches, and the English as 45. The elephant's ears are thus at least 15 inches long, and maybe 23. The beast can do many tricks, but as Olarius did with the Russian bear tricks in episode 3, he also does not tell us what any of the elephant tricks are. He does, however, correct some fake news from ancient historians, who said elephants are incapable of lying down, due to a natural defect in the joints of their legs. That natural defect, he explains, was allegedly observed when an elephant would rest against a tree. The tree would fall down, taking the elephant with it, and the elephant would tell his handler, Help! I've fallen and can't get up! Modern travelers to India, Olarius says, have already debunked this tale in their own books, and thus there is no reason to repeat their work here.
please accept my apologies, dear listener, for the bad elephant joke, and refresh yourselves with a story about snakes that eat men's brains. Throughout this podcast, I have endeavored to retell the epic journey in plain modern language, but occasionally I read the 1669 English translation verbatim. I do this partly to demonstrate that the way humans think is influenced by the words we read and hear, and even by how those words are organized into thoughts. Later on in the podcast, we will see that people who lived 350 years ago were only beginning to create museums, and that the way they organized those museums was very, very different from the way we do it today. And so I will tell the tale of the brain-eating snakes by reading verbatim, and a bit more slowly, the words written in 1669. The city of Caswin hath, toward the south-southwest, the mountain of Elwind, which is a branch of Mount Taurus, and the most considerable mountain of any in Persia, for its vast and noble quarries, out of which white marble is gotten, whereof there is such an abundance, that there is enough to supply the whole kingdom. The Persians relate a pleasant story of a thing, which, were it true, would be very remarkable. But admitting it is not, we shall nevertheless insert it here, as we have it from them, upon the occasion of this mountain. They say, then, that heretofore a certain king of Persia named Suhak Maran, who was much pleased in taking journeys up and down, would needs once find out some means to have made, in the open fields, a kind of baked paste, used by the Persians instead of napkins. The devil, desirous to make his advantage of this irregular desire of the king's, presented himself to him in the shape of a man, made him an oven, which a camel might easily carry, and desired of him no other reward than that he might kiss the king's shoulder. There was no difficulty made to grant him a thing of so little consequence, but the devil, instead of kissing the king's shoulder, applied his teeth thereto, takes away a piece of it, and immediately vanishes. Out of the wound there came two serpents, which were perpetually biting at the head and ears of that miserable prince, to get out his brains. And though they were often cut off, yet there immediately started up others in their room. The devil who had done all the mischief, having disguised himself like a hakim or physician, went and made proffer of his service at the court, and prescribed a remedy which was as bad, if not worse, than the evil itself. He said that since those serpents were so desirous to feed on the brains of a man, and that as it should seem it was their only sustenance, the best course were, every day, to kill two men, and to feed them with their brains. One of the chiefest grandees about the court, moved with compassion to see daily so much innocent blood spilt, and considering that by the means of so many murders the number of the king's subjects would be infinitely diminished, ordered that there should be two men brought to the stake, as they were wont before, but that only one should be killed, and that with the man's brains those of a sheep, then also new-killed, should be mixed, and that that should be the allowance of the serpents. Which project took so successfully that the said lord, perceiving that the serpents were not sensible thereof, he, at last, caused the two men to be conveyed out of the way, and made use only of the sheep's brains. Among those who had most contributed to the nourishment of these beasts, a blacksmith named Churdek, was one, 
by which means almost all his children had been upon that account destroyed, so that of seventy-six sons that he had, only two were left. Growing desperate upon so great a loss, he represented to the other inhabitants of the city that it was impossible for them to endure that tyranny long, that there was no likelihood nature should have brought them all into the world to be sacrificed to the appetite of one particular man, that it were better to rid themselves of the tyrant, and in regard the state could not be without a governor, that it was his advice that they should bring in Keshro ben Friedun, who had been put out by Suhak and was then living in the deserts of the mountain of Elwend. This counsel was approved by the people, who, desirous to have it put in execution by the person who had given it, entrusted the blacksmith with the management of that great enterprise, who, having fastened his leathern apron to an iron hook, led on the rest of the malcontents, and seized the person of Suhak. Then they went afterward to the mountain of Elwind, where they found Keshero among the wild beasts, and restored him to his throne. The first request that Keshero made to the people was that Suhek might not be put to death, which was granted, but they carried him to the mountain of Demowind, which reaches from that of Elwind toward Tehran, where they made him go into a cave, and hung him up by his feet. They say he is there living to this day, and that the place of his punishment is known by a sulfurous stink that comes out of it. Whereto they add, that when a stone is cast into the cave, there comes out a voice which says, Why dost thou fling stones at me? They say also that Keshero so regulated his expenses during the whole time of his reign, that he gathered vast treasures together, and that he put it up in the mountain Bakru in the province of Kilan, hiding it so safely by the means of a talisman, that till there happen a conjecture of the same stars, it will never be discovered. They say the place is known, but that when any come near it, there arise certain winds, which not only blow out the lights, but also overturn the men who bring them. But the truth of all this story is that there are many sulfurous mines in those mountains, and that the winds which reign there are very natural and ordinary, as well there as in several other provinces of Persia, as we had observed before at Ardabil. Nor is it unlikely that there may be a mystical sense of this relation, and that the Persians, who are much addicted to teach their morality under fables, would, by this fabulous history, condemn those princes who, to satisfy their irregular passions, are apt to hear flatterers, who, being ever guilty of wicked intentions, never give any good advice, and, to prevent the inconveniences arising thereby, apply remedies that are much more dangerous than the evil itself, and such as not only are destructive to the people, but also putting them into despair, animate them into rebellion against their princes, who are, by that means, brought to great misfortunes. The Holstein Trade Mission leaves Caswin on July 13, 1637. In the next episode, our ambassadors cross the desert where a man cannot walk five or six steps without burning his feet. They travel through a city of very light-fingered thieves, and a Muscovian servant dies of the bloody flux on the road to Isfahan, on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. <laughs> <laughs>